Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Coast Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. And good morning, everyone. Good morning, Leanne. Good morning, Dr. Ira. And good morning, Frank. Hey, good morning. We're talking to Frank uh, Mazapal, chief bottle washer, cook, and chief engineer. He's taking out the garbage today. Yeah, we, we, can, we walked in. He was taking out the garbage. We have yeah. a very special guest today. Tell us about him. Well, first of all, we owe him big. You know why? Why? Because this was a last-minute show. We had a guest cancel, and I had to get a guest. And I found a phenomenal guest, Dr. Robbie Kashaudi neurologist extraordinaire who practices right here on the Treasure Coast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Dr. Perlstein. Yeah. I was getting ready for the hurricane, but you called me last minute. I dropped everything and I'm, <laughs> I'm here. Yeah, I, dro- I dropped a shutter on my foot a couple of years ago and, and that that was painful. I had to actually get a tetanus shot, but which I probably needed anyway. You know, we do have a storm coming and I know we don't like to talk about the weather a lot. We're not meteorologists. This is kind of like the Academy <laughs> Award week for meteorologists. This is their big thing. Guys, don't take this storm lightly. This may be a big storm. It may not. Nobody really knows the direction of where it's going. Those spaghetti models, the, there's European models, there's spaghetti models. For those of you that are gluten-free, I don't know if you can believe the spaghetti models or not. No. <laughs> <laughs> No shortage on puns, just a shortage on water. Right, just a shortage on water. And you don't have to buy bottled water. Did you know that, Dr. Kashani? No. Yeah, people feel like they need to clear the shelves of bottled water, but you can take water and put it in coolers, and you can take your water and put it in thermoses. A couple hurricane tips I'd like to pass on. This sure. Morning. Number one, never put gasoline in your house. Don't store your gas in the garage or in your home. Store it outside. Number two, if you have a generator, make sure it's well ventilated. The generator does not do well in the garage or anywhere near an open door because of carbon monoxide poisoning. That will kill you. Number three, use your washing machine as a cooler. You can fill your washing machine with ice, put your drinks in there, anything you need to keep cold. The lid will shut down. And then after the storm passes and you get your electricity back, you take out your food, you take out your drinks, and you hit the drain button on your washer, and all the water and ice go away. Nice. Next, fill your bathtubs with water because if your toilets don't flush, you're going to need that. If you spill something, you've got bathtubs that are filled with water and keep water in your sinks just to kind of wash up with. So those are some little hurricane tips that you might want. Prepare for the storm. Leanne, I was preparing for the storm. I went and got a new battery for my generator this morning. We're going to get people to come help me put up shutters at the house because it takes me like a full day to do it. But if I have a team, I can get it done in a couple hours. And I was thinking perhaps a bad joke, but wouldn't it be cool if we had an ice cream store here in the Stewart area and we called it hurricanes, ice cream, or just Dorian's ice cream. And we would have a special dish called the cone of uncertainty and nobody would really know what they're getting. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe not. Dr. Kashadi, how do you prepare for the storm? I'm still new to Florida. Um, it's very difficult to me to get along with hurricane season. You know, it's, it's a very nervous time for me. But um, I, I just fixed my roof. It's a new roof and uh, bought a new generator. So I'm not leaving any, anywhere this time. Right. I'm staying put. Now, now your kids, are, are, do they get anxious about the storm or are they too young to know? Tell us about your kids. Um, got two kids, four and seven. My seven-year-old, Aiden, uh, he loves hurricanes for some reason. 
And He's got your undivided attention. I'm convinced that's what it is. Like you're uh, at home and there's nothing to do other than watch them. Well, you know, the last two hurricanes, we went to Atlanta. So for him, when he heard this time that there's a hurricane, he goes, okay, let's start packing. Let's go to Atlanta. I said, well, not this time. He goes, why? We have to. <laughs> well, you know, it's, we, we're ready this time. Um, you know, I, this is my fourth year in Florida. So I should be ready. You and, know. and you're married. I'm married to Dr. Yono, Noor Yono. And what does she do? A neurologist as well. And you work together. We work together, husband and wife. How lovely. It is lovely. <laughs> Dueling neurologist. <laughs> I love it. You don't hear that much. So today the show is called Tremors, Shakes, and Repairing the Body's Mistakes. And I'm really excited to have you here because I think neurology belongs in one of those categories where patients don't always know what a neurologist does. And anytime I'm sending my patients to a neurologist, I always say, this is half about you getting help and half about me getting help, right? Because neurologists help primary care doctors a lot of times, um, you know, make decisions and give us suggestions for how to treat some of these conditions. So we're really excited to have you on the show. I'm really excited to have them on. And it's one of those mystery specialties. They don't teach you a lot about neurology in medical school and residency, just like ophthalmology. We had an ophthalmologist on a few weeks ago, and now we have a neurologist on. So you're not only educating our audience, you're also educating us on who needs to see a neurologist sometimes and why they need to see one. So why did you choose the specialty of neurology? You know, it's a very interesting question. Uh, going back to medical school, or actually even before medical school and undergraduate school, um, I wanted to be a pediatrician. I always wanted to work with little kids, and that was my intention from the beginning. Uh, when I did my pediatric rotation, um, I couldn't handle it. Uh, it wasn't for me. Uh, as much as I love kids and treating kids, I just couldn't see myself being a pediatrician. Um, neurology was one specialty that I thought it would be best suited for me for multiple reasons. I think neurology is unique. You know, there's a lot of advances um, when it comes to neurology, a lot of research, a lot of new medications, a lot of new treatments. And that's the interesting thing about neurology, that every year there's something new. So can you tell the audience who may not have any familiarity with neurology what conditions you typically see during the day? Um, neurology is very broad. So we see patients from headaches such as migraines or tension headaches to muscle diseases, nerve problems, as simple as carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, my main training is muscle and nerve and that was my fellowship training in uh, michigan i see a lot of patients with uh, uh, myasthenia gravis which is a muscle uh, and nerve problem a lot of muscle diseases als patients um, and other myopathies such as you know could be different type of muscle disease um, that's my background however other neurologists can also see epilepsy seizures um, um, could be also simple as dizziness, uh, concussion. So those are the things that neurologists typically cover. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine there's a lot of overlap of what you do and what your wife does. But Dr. Yono, she sees more of the seizure patients and more of the Parkinson's patients. Or how does that work for you? How do you decide in your practice who gets to see what? So when we first decided to have the husband-wife team. <laughs> um, um, so we decided that since my background is more muscle and nerve training, I focus on muscle testing such as EMG, electromyography, and nerve conduction studies, and uh, medical Botox injection for multiple different diseases, uh, such as dystonia, spasticity, cerebral palsy, uh, uh, excessive sweating or excessive uh, drooling. Um, abnormal head tilt. So those are the things I focus on. Other things that Dr. Yono focuses on are Parkinson, uh, epilepsy, um, and also Alzheimer. That's uh, main areas that she focuses on and multiple sclerosis. Those are big areas that she covers. We just added a new epileptologist, Dr. Katani. She focuses mainly on epilepsy, uh, but we all see general neurology. Um, but we focus each one of us on certain areas in neurology. So how do you do it? You've got two kids. You've got a busy practice. You're a neurologist. Your wife's a neurologist. How do you do the time management thing? Have time for everything? 
Um, I, I watch a lot of soccer, by the way. That's <laughs> something I, I try to fit in in my schedule. Um, you know, it's difficult uh, having kids uh, running a practice and managing uh, different things, trying to have time for my kids. It's not easy, uh, but I guess having good skills in terms of organization and scheduling and good uh, supporting cast around me. My manager is uh, my brother-in-law. Um, so he helps us a lot in terms of managing the practice and keeping things in, in place. And also um, speaking to the other doctors in, in town and making sure that patients are well taken care of. Now you have two offices, correct? Uh, so far, one one will be open very soon in tradition. Okay, but you go to Port St. Lucie Hospital, uh, the HCA Medical Center there, Correct. as well as the Cleveland Clinic hospitals. Correct. We we mainly cover St. Lucie Hospital for now. Uh, we cover the inpatient service and um, also the outpatient in Stewart. Uh, when I was in my training eons ago. <laughs> there were no CAT scans and MRI scans. So the neurologists were the nerdy guys. They would carry the multiple pins in different colors in their pockets, and they would draw out the nerve tracks. But it seems to me that the advent of CAT scanning in the 80s and MRI in the late 80s and 90s has really changed the way neurologists practice. Because now you can see what you're talking about. It's kind of like the, the early explorers. Exactly. They knew the world was round, but it wasn't until we actually went up, went up, we could see that it was actually round. So it must make your job perhaps a little bit easier. Well, those neurologists that you're speaking about, uh, did they wear a bow tie or? They sure did. <laughs> and a pocket protector for all those pens. Right. Well, you know, it's. As you said, CT scans and MRIs made the big change in neurology. And uh, because of that, um, things have moved dramatically in faster pace when it comes to treatment and catching things early. I mean, we can go back. MRI was literally discovered in 1977, almost 1979, by an Armenian uh, gentleman in New York. Um, and he had the first patent for MRI, but it took six hours to do the first body scan. Six hours just whole body scan. So since then, things have moved dramatically fast um, in terms of catching diseases early and uh, managing patients. So seeing a neurologist is no longer the kiss of death. Not anymore, no. Unless you're seeing an old school neurologist, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I want to launch into some neurologic diseases that you and your wife see. Can we talk about that for a little bit? Absolutely. Let's talk about Parkinson's disease. Perfect. And, you know, I'm a movie buff. We always add a movie, talk about a movie that kind of adds to our discussion. There was a movie with Robert De Niro and Robin Williams that came out in 1990. And that movie was called Awakenings. And it detailed Robin Williams, who played Dr. Malcolm Sayer, S-A-Y-E-R, who in 1969 took these patients who were literally frozen. And these were the patients who couldn't move because they had depleted a chemical in their brain called dopamine, which helps with movement. And they believed, as was true, that the dopamine depletion was due to a viral illness that happened in 1918, 1919, during the great flu epidemic in this country. These people were literally frozen. And he administered to them L-dopa or levodopa. Correct. And the more he gave them, the better they did until it got to a critical point where they required so much that it developed a movement disorder from the increase in levodopa. Correct me if I'm wrong here. And let's talk about how Robin Williams helped Robert De Niro, brought tears to my eyes. Great movie if you haven't seen it. But that L-dopa is now combined with carbidopa to kind of alleviate that. How do you know what to start someone on when they develop Parkinson's disease? And tell us a little bit about how you recognize Parkinson's disease. 
No, that's a very interesting movie, and uh, it has a lot of history behind it, really. Uh, from the 1960s, how uh, carbidopa, or actually more levodopa, uh, was discovered. So with Parkinson, um, the problem with, with the Parkinson is that you have death of neuronal cells in certain area in the brain, and those cells are responsible for dopamine. Dopamine is a basically a very important um, uh, part of our, as a neurotransmitter, uh, to control our movements, and not just movements, maybe mood and other things. Um, with, to go back to Parkinson, you know, symptoms don't start overnight. Uh, if someone comes into me with tremors, and they say, oh, my tremors has been going on for about six months. But you really can trace back symptoms many years prior, maybe 10, 20, 30 years prior, people in their 30s and 40s. And that is astonishing because by time symptoms start in Parkinson, you literally lost 70 to 80% of your neurons in your brain. You only have 20%, 30% left to keep, to keep forward and to protect those nerves. Wow. If you just joined us, this is Paradox. I'm Dr. Ira Perlstein, and I'm with my co-host, Dr. Leanne Talton, with our special guest today, Dr. Robbie Kashaudi, neurologist here in Stewart, Florida. And you're welcome to call in if you have any questions right now about Parkinson's disease. Give us a call at 772-220-WSTU. That's 772-220-9788. And Dr. Ravi, you're just telling us about uh, Parkinson's and kind of how things progressed, um, but not everything, not all tremors are Parkinson's, correct? So I think that as a primary care doctor, we get the first line people coming in with any kind of shaking and thinking, this is it, this is the end, I'm ready for this diagnosis, <laughs> but that's not what you see, correct? Correct. I, I agree with you. Uh, when I see a patient with tremors, you know, we have to know the age. Are they young? Are they older? Uh, medication is the first thing I look at. Uh, certain medication can cause tremors. And you'll be surprised that by stopping those medication, whether it's for respiratory issues, such as asthma, or for seizures, such as Depakote can cause tremor. You switch the medication, then you notice that tremors are totally gone. Um, obviously, the history of Alcohol use for, you know, uh, chronic alcohol use can also cause some tremors and many other things. However, the history and the exams are as important. Uh, we have to see, are the tremors at rest? Are the tremors when you're holding something in your hand? With Parkinson, it's known that there are, the tremors are at rest. With something else, such it's called essential tremor. Uh, that's the good cousin of tremors, you can say. Mm -hmm. um, and those tremors are typically seen when you're doing something with your hands, when you're holding something, when you're drinking something, whether you're drinking, having a cup of water or holding, you know, drinking soup, you know, with a spoon. So the exam is very important. And whatever we see on the exam with the history, we make the final diagnosis saying this is Monsati Parkinson or this could be essential tremor or something different. So that's like the Catherine Hepburn tremor. Uh, she didn't have Parkinson's disease. She just had a severe form of uh, an essential tremor or a tremor of aging. Yeah, essential tremor is treatable. And uh, there are many medications we can uh, we can try. And most patients respond beautifully to it. Uh, and uh, one of them is medical marijuana if patients don't respond to typical medications. I can't wait to talk about that later on in the show. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> we look forward to that. You know, everyone likes Michael J. Fox, great actor, back to the future, who unfortunately came down with Parkinson's disease. And people wanted to know why did he have Parkinson's disease and was it drug-related or was he just unfortunate and developed depletion of the dopamine substance uh, in that part of the brain, the basal ganglia, or I think it's a substantia nigra, if I'm, which is Latin for black substance because dopamine kind of appears as a dark, darker black color on scanning. But <clears throat> my understanding of Parkinson's disease, that there was a designer drug, which actually came out in the 1940s, but it gained some popularity in the 1980s, and it was called MP 
MPTP. Yes. And MPTP was used to cut other drugs. And MPTP is metabolized to an active drug called MPPP+. Yes. I don't want to get really complicated here, but the bottom line is that that substance, that MPPP, rapidly depletes dopamine stores and you can develop Parkinson's symptoms in as few as 72 hours after Correct. ingesting that drug. Yeah. I agree. How yeah. has that helped us understand the disease process better and led to better treatments for Parkinson's disease? So, I mean, you're right with the history in terms of uh, the use of this derivative of the drug, uh, MPTP. I, um, and um, it, I believe it was in the 1940s. It was a trial for annual, uh, for pain medication. And... Uh, I guess by, I guess, surprise, uh, medication was discovered uh, by a, a student in, uh, I believe, University of Maryland. And um, he took the drug, and within three days, he developed uh, symptoms of Parkinsonism. And uh, he died, I believe, two years later for something totally unrelated, uh, cocaine overdose or something like this. But that shed light on how things work with Parkinson. And a few years later, 1967, first medication came into life, I would say, which is uh, Cinemat. And the uh, company MERS gave the first uh, patent to the medication. So from 1960s until now, you know, we used, uh, you know, we still use Cinemat tremendously in our practice. But we have to be careful. You know, we can't use Cinemat on every single person. We cannot overly use it because it does have a lot of side effects. We have to consider the age, we have to consider the, the risk factors, and um, we have to consider how significant the symptoms are. Because not every patient with Parkinson has tremor. The majority do, yes, but some have uh, slow movements, some have rigidity. Um, Parkinson is a very complex disorder. And there's newer treatments now, right? Yes, uh, there are some uh, medications, we call them dopamine agonists. Uh, those are something that uh, mimics dopamines or um, keeps the dopamine active or symptoms of dopamine in the brain. That helps a lot, but they also come with significant side effects, uh, mainly sleep attacks. Uh, so I always tell my patients when you're on dopamine agonist, if you're driving long distance, this is not the right medication for you. Um, and also can cause mood swings. And uh, for some reason, it can have patients uh, be pathological gamblers or uh, have other addiction to certain things. So they, they come with significant side effects. Um, other medications, uh, inhalation type of medication just came into um, uh, to the market. Um, and outside the United States, they're actually pump of Cinemat that you can use. It has less side effect than the typical Cinemat we take per mouth. Um, that's used outside the United States significantly. Not much here yet. Um, hopefully, in the upcoming years, we'll be uh, using it more and more for patients who fail to respond to medication that they take per mouth. And what about vitamins? I, I know vitamins are now part of the regimen for Parkinson's disease. Can you tell us about vitamin infusion therapy? Absolutely. Um, what makes, I guess, you know, as you mentioned earlier, neurologists are, they always look into one-way street. They don't have two-way streets. Um, for me, managing Parkinson has to be multi-dimensional approach, including uh, medications that we usually use, plus vitamin supplements. And which vitamin supplements? So the ones I use as intravenous uh, vitamin uh, infusion, I use something called nicotinamide, which is called NAD+. So that protects the mitochondria in the brain. And that's a B vitamin, correct? Nicotin no, it's a pure nicotinamide. It's pure nicotinamide. Okay. Yes, it's called NAD+. Okay. I also use taurine, those an amino acid that also helps the dopaminergic neurons in the brain. Now, remember, you only have 20% left when your symptoms start. So you really have to protect these 20% um, uh, left. You can use glutathione, which is very powerful antioxidant. Most of 
The problem at Parkinson is truly free radicals circulating around, causing damage to the neurons, causing the cell death. And explain to our listeners what free radicals are. So free radicals are unstable molecules. When there are unstable molecules, just like someone going berserk on the street, just trying to destroy anything around, same thing with the free radicals. They go around and their job is just to destabilize things. And when they go to a cell, they cause uh, something called oxidative stress. And the more oxidative stress, the cell will eventually die. And that's what causes the dopamine, dopamine neurons in the brain to die. If you've just joined us, this is Paradox. I'm Dr. Ira Perlstein with my co-host, Dr. Leanne Talton. And we're talking to esteemed neurologist <laughs> from Stewart, Florida, Dr. Robbie Kashaudi. And we're talking about Parkinson's disease. We want you to call in if you have any questions, but right now we're going to cut to a commercial break. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to Paradox. I'm Dr. Leanne Talton. My co-host is Dr. Ira Perlstein. We're here today with Dr. Robbie Kashaudi. We're talking about neurology. Before we get back into the meat of today's discussion, I just want to take a moment to get to know our guest better, to get to know our co-host better. Uh, I talked to Dr. Ira about having a little segue, talking about personal stuff, and he said, you know, that's a really girly question. So sorry for the audience that I'm about to get personal, but... Uh, oh, that's okay. You can ask me anything, Leah. There we go. So, you know, when we were preparing for the show and we decided that we wanted to kind of present a little bit of the personal side of being a doctor and doctoring, um, I came up with a list of questions for how to get to know Ira better. And one of the things that I thought I would ask him and you, uh, Dr. Kashaudi, is how do you think having children influences your doctoring? And on the converse, how do you think um, being a doctor has affected your parenting? That is, that is such a tough question. It was different back when I was training because we would be on call days at a time. They don't do that anymore. Yeah. But being a doctor and raising children several decades ago taught me three things. Tolerance, becoming a better listener, and the, and the ability to have more patience, that's P-A-T-I-E-N-C-E, not P-A-T-I-E-N-T-S. How would you answer that question, Dr. Gashaudi? Uh It's a very complex question. You might think of it as simple, but it's not. Um, no, I guess organization skills are very important. Um, since my wife is a physician and uh, we try to keep uh, speaking about medicine at work, but it's very difficult because when we come home, we still talk about patient, you know, well, how would you treat this? You know, I tried this. Do you think that's a good idea? So, you you know, patients typically get two opinions and, um, and that's, that's, I guess it's a, it's a plus, but um, I try to bring my kids in to the office so they can see how things go, even though they're young and they love to come to the office, especially the older one. My younger one still runs around, uh, but uh, my seven-year-old, he loves, you know, I give, you know, I give him papers to shred, uh, I give him uh, things to do, and he feels that he's doing something, and um, that's very important. 
uh, to kind of give him their, their, there's a sense of responsibility and there's things to do and um, that we don't just sit around and do nothing. So how do you think having children in the middle of your doctor journey has affected how you handle patients? Do you feel like it's affected you as a physician having children? Um, not necessarily, no. I think it just gave me more responsibility to handle. Uh, handling kids is different, obviously, than handling patients. Uh, it's two different things that I love to do. Um, but, uh, you know, I, st I still give them the time that they need. And uh, that's what I guess keeps me going. Well, you know, that's one thing my patients love about you. And it's one reason I wanted you as a guest on our show today. Because you're not just a good neurologist. You're an excellent listener. And my patients will tell me, when I went to see Dr. Kashaudi, he's the first neurologist that actually listened to my symptoms. It seemed like he cared. He wanted to hear my story. And that's a hard skill to develop. But you've done that. And you've done that well. Thank you for the compliments. I that's really nice to hear. Sure. So before we went on break, we were talking about Parkinson's disease. We were talking about treatments for Parkinson's. And I have another question for you about new treatments regarding uh, deep brain stimulation. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, that's a very important piece of treatment when it comes to uh, patients with Parkinson's. However, it's not meant to be first-line treatment. It's something for advanced uh, tremors that are unresponsive or little responsive to medications that we use and also can help with patients who have been on medications for many years and develop something called dyskinesias, which means involuntary movements. And those are very bothersome to patients. So the D-brain stimulation, they're inserted in certain areas in the brain and they stimulate certain electrical discharges in the motor strip in the brain to control some of those involuntary movements. We still don't know too much about it, but it had made significant improvement over the past few years. And where do you send your patients for deep brain stimulation? Uh, dip, uh, unfortunately, you know, depends on insurance. And um, we have to, you know, send people, sometimes University of Miami, uh, sometimes locally, um, or sometimes in West Palm Beach. So it really depends insurance-wise. We don't have much power on that. Okay, we're going to move on to stroke sure. because this treatment for stroke has really changed. Stroke used to be really devastating. And now with the advent of stroke centers, interventional radiology, uh, TPA, tissue plasminogen activator, clot busters, so to speak, the prognosis of stroke, if caught early, can be very promising. What is the difference between what a neurologist might do, a neurosurgeon, or an interventional radiologist during a stroke, or is it a coordinated effort between everyone at a stroke center? And can you comment on that for us? Of course, yes. Um, I mean, with the event of MRI, I mean, that's where things moved forward significantly. Uh, without MRI, I would assume that there is not much uh, advance when it comes to managing patients with stroke. Um, Strokes basically can affect any part of the body, whether it's your speech, ability to see, ability to move, ability to sense. Um, now, it could be many different reasons, but if there's a clot and if they fall with symptom-wise, if they fall within the window, um, whether it's three hours or four and a half hours, now there's different criteria we use, um, and we're able to capture that on imaging and with the help with interventional radiologists or neurologists that are also trained in this, they were able to actually have uh, the clot retrieved to preserve whatever is left behind in the brain. So like they go in and grab it? That's one way or uh, uh, bust it inside or, you know, there's different ways to do it. It depends the location, how big it is and um, how far the symptoms are, have been going. So if one of our listeners thought they were having a stroke what are the warning signs that they need to watch out for and make sure that they're immediately transported to a stroke center? So stroke, you can, you can literally present with anything. Uh, you can have sudden onset of weakness, whether it's one side or one arm or one leg, 
or you can have loss of sensation in the whole body or one side as well you can lose vision so there are many depends really on where that clot or where the stenosis the tight areas in the blood vessels in the brain causes reduction in blood supply to the brain um, so it's really you know very diverse but if you feel as a patient you have symptoms of weakness numbness visual problems um, you should not hesitate to go right away to the emergency room and the doctors in this area are very equipped to manage patients with strokes but you shouldn't drive yourself no absolutely not absolutely I wouldn't. not i don't think so you, if you've you just joined us we're here at paradox uh, i'm dr ira perlstein my co-host is dr leanne talton and we're with esteemed neurologist dr robbie kashaudi we're talking about stroke if you have any questions for us give us a call at 772-220-9788 dr kashaudi would love to answer those questions for you now i want to talk to you about a passion of yours and why you got into it and it's a little controversial but it's medical marijuana and i know that i've been to some of your lectures on the use of medical marijuana how did you get into the interest that you have with medical marijuana and how has it helped you and your patients as a neurologist no, this is a very interesting uh, topic, and we we many many times we had spoken about marijuana and uh, medical cannabis in general. You know, that's the best uh, word we can use. Um, marijuana to me is a natural substance. It's not a recreational drug anymore. Uh, things have been, I guess, there's a taboo when it comes to marijuana from the 60s, 70s, with President Nixon, as we previously you know mentioned. Uh, um, and or also going back to 1920s and 30s. Uh, so this is nothing. Uh, marijuana has been used for thousands of years even. So there are a lot of benefits using marijuana, whether it's for a patient with Parkinson or seizures or patient with ALS, um, uh, nerve problems, uh, chronic pain. There are many neurological problems that marijuana can help. There's many research out there that proves that. Uh, to me, it's... a it's a very good medication. That's what I call it. I call it as a medication to use for pain rather than using opiate-derived medication, which have more side effect than anything. I think medical cannabis has the least side effect with the best or the most benefit. And uh, we can try CBD, which is cannabinoid, and that has the non-psychotic effect, plus the TAC, tetrahydrocannabinol, but when people smoke typically marijuana they only get the thc and they burn the cbd and that causes the psychosis or the high sensation as people call it however in medical cannabis we use both when cbd is combined with thc cbd blocks that psychosis or the high sensation cbd thc together they work in conjunction together synergistically to help pain uh, spasticity, muscle spasms, and seizure reduction. So that's the benefit of having both at the same time. Do we understand why it helps pain? Well, endogenously, I mean, that means part of our body, we have receptors called CB1 and CB2. And part of those receptors, um, when you have pain, there are certain molecules that attach to those receptors. And Therefore, when you take something that attaches to those receptors, such as CBD, automatically you're going to get relief. You're not taking anything artificial. You're taking something natural. And since we already have receptors, they are ready to activate uh, by CB to be activated by the CBD. We get benefits for pain and many other things, whether it's for seizures by lowering the C uh, you know the number of attacks. And uh, some patients have 10, 20 at seizures a day. And that's, you know, when you lower it down to one seizure every other day, that's life-changing experience for that patient and the family around the patient. So, so how do you decide as an expert in medical marijuana, the dosage form to give the patient, whether or not they're going to vaporize it, whether or not they're going to uh, use it as a drop under their tongue, 
whether or not they're going to use it as an oil, and how you, do you determine the ratio between the CBD and THC? You know, I was with Dr. Yono, one of the first ones to be approved for medical cannabis uh, when it first got approved here in Florida. And uh, unfortunately, state of Florida gives you, uh, there's a lecture that or uh, course that you have to take, um, but doesn't tell you, it does not direct you as a physician how and what to give. Um, however, we studied many research papers and uh, we read many um, uh, things online and uh, with uh, experience that we have managing many, many patients, we finally, we can say that we have a special um, dosage for, you know, certain type of problems. Um, now, I always give the, the option to the patient. I tell them, would you prefer vaporized treatment? Would you prefer the tablets? Would you prefer liquid? Um, my preference would be combination of two things, whether it's liquid or tablets plus vaporized treatment. The reason why I do that, vaporized treatment works very fast, doesn't last long. When it comes to tablets or liquid or gummies, it doesn't matter really. It's basically sustaining a certain um, number of um, uh, in your body. So you need combination of both. So if you have an acute attack of pain, um, you need the vaporized treatment to help with that. But to treat your chronic pain, your everyday pain, you need something that you sustain and you have to take it every day. So combination of two things will be the best. So do patients have to be referred to your practice for this or can they self-refer? I mean, if people, I, I have a lot of patients that are interested and they just don't know what to do next. Um, it's a combination of all these things, a combination of all these things you mentioned, Dr. Salton. So um, I have patients who uh, self-refer themselves mm -hmm. and uh, some of my own patients, I tell them, well, we have option A, B, C, D, and one of those options are medical cannabis. Um, and uh, patients telling other patients as well. So also word of mouth is very important. And also uh, the most important thing is now people are more aware of benefits of medical cannabis. Mm -hmm. Now they're seeing people using it with literally no side effect, uh, you know, or little side effect. So seeing it, let's say one patient tells me, I've seen my neighbor use it for his pain. I think I want to give it a, a try, but do you think it's a good idea? So they come in and I discuss with them the benefits and I tell them, well, this is, you know, this is how we can use it. Um, however, it's expensive. Unfortunately, we still have problems with the, you know, how much it costs. If right. We, and insurance will not cover it because it's not legal nationally and it's only legal state by state. Or how are we going to get insurance plans to get on board with paying for this? I personally don't see that happening. That's a person, you know, this is, uh, you know, insurance will know that in my view, they're going to lose money because if you're going to get insurance for medical cannabis, 99.99% you're going to end up using it. So the insurance will pay out of pocket for that. I mean, from their pockets, obviously. Uh, I don't see that happening. Plus the federal versus state, um, it's an issue. So we still have some hurdles. Uh, major hurdles. Yeah. yeah. To me, one of the biggest hurdles are someone becomes, it becomes part of their medication regimen. And now they're going on vacation and they're vacationing out of the state. And they're going to a state where it's not legal, medically or recreationally. What happens? They... It's it's a very I get that I get those questions a lot and there my the legal way to answer that I tell the patients please do not take it with you because if you get caught you're gonna you know you might have have problems. However, at this point, you know on the news we haven't had one issue yet or one case that someone got stopped at the airport because they're carrying their medical cannabis. I don't anticipate that's going to happen because if that's, you know, if the first case is going to happen, it's going to open a Pandora box. There's no way around it. So I think federally, they know there are a lot of movements between states and states. You can, you know, especially in Florida, people travel from Michigan, New York, New Jersey. 
there's no way to stop it. Unfortunately, they have to come up with it, you know, with things to fix it. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Do you ever see a patient who's referred to you for medical marijuana and you say, you know, you're just not a good candidate for this. And what are some of the criteria that you look for that would make them a good candidate versus someone who you might refuse to prescribe medical marijuana for? No, it's, it's a good question. I always try to stick to uh, criteria that state of Florida has, you know, for physicians to, uh, to prescribe medical cannabis. I mean, there are some patients who come in to me and say, hey, I want a medical cannabis because I feel that I have nightmares at, at, at night or something that doesn't really, f you know, doesn't, f doesn't fit well. So you, you can easily pick those up very easily and say, well, you know, maybe this is not the right wait for you to go, you might try behavioral therapy or any other therapy, or you might try a different route of, you know, things. So we try to stick to those criteria. And uh, most of the time, you know, patients are actually, you know, they're coming, uh, they're really looking for help. And, you know, speaking about from the patient perspective, I think that because a lot of these patients have lived through an era where this was uh, stigmatized, that they are still worried about appearing uh, like a drug user if they have questions about this. Do you, what is it? What do you think patients feel? feel when they come into your office? Do you think they're worried about that? And what is what do you do? What does your office do to try to alleviate those uh, fears of being judged? You know, there, unfortunately, in this area, and any other areas in Florida, there's some still some physicians who actually tell their patients, you cannot use medical cannabis, because we don't believe in it. And if you use it, we're going to discharge you. And I've seen many of my patients um, going through that. So they fear when they come to me and say, well, you know, Dr. X said, if I go on medical cannabis, am I going to lose that doctor? You know, or I feel, you know, I might, you know, be stigmatized that I'm using medical cannabis, but telling them about, you know, the experience of other patients, I think helps them significantly and coming from a neurologist perspective and say, look, we've seen this, we've been through it. We've been doing it for past two, three years now. Uh, these are the benefits, and this is how it's going to help you if you take it. Uh, I think patients will eventually feel more relieved and, uh, um, I guess, happier in a way to try it uh, if they really reach a point that they're not getting any help with anything else they try. And patients with good experience is what's going to change the stigma. Exactly, yes. Now, what is, I mean, obviously the changes in uh, regulations and laws has potentially opened up a whole new world for research, I'm hoping, in medical cannabis. What's new on the horizon? In, there are a lot of research out there when it comes to cannabis. Now, if you go back to 1970s and 60s, there, uh, President Nixon, unfortunately, had uh, gathered significant amount of research papers that are only negative when it comes to cannabis. And that's how he you know, said marijuana in general is not something we can use and he labeled it next to cocaine and heroin as some substance uh, that we should not use. Um, he totally neglected the positive effect of marijuana. But every year, there are thousands of papers uh, being published uh, about the positive effect of marijuana. And there is no hiding anymore behind it. Uh, the substance or the, the medicine helps in the end. Where do you think we're going to be two years from now? Two years, I don't think things will change. Five to 10 years down the road, I think federally, uh, the discussion will, will start to happen uh, to make it legal throughout the United States. So making it legal is one big hurdle. And then you say the second big, maybe another hurdle is changing the stigma and then also making it affordable is what your yes. final hope would be. Yeah, so what, what can patients expect when they go, when you prescribe them medical marijuana, and they get a card from the state and they can go to a dispensary and buy it with the recommendations that you've given them, what can the average person expect to pay at a dispensary? You know, it ranges literally from 100 to $400 a month. And that's a lot. I mean, some patients, that's a lot of money. Some patients cannot afford it. And a lot of my patients qualify to get it, but 
cannot afford it. So that's an issue too. So we've come a long way from the 1938, 39 movie Reefer yeah. Madness, but yes. we're not quite there yet. <laughs> no, not yet. Soon, hopefully, well, things will change, but uh, things are moving very slowly, unfortunately. So you, so you say your office does take self-referrals. So if a patient listening feels like they're not sure if they're a good candidate, is there any online uh, resources that they could go to to learn from an educated uh, perspective whether or not they are a good fit? Um, there are many, actually, many things online you can go to. For example, on my website, premierneurologycenter.com, I have a section that I had written myself about the benefits of my cannabis, uh, who qualifies, uh, typical dose that I prescribe. Uh, so there are many resources their patients can use. Great. So listeners who are liking what Dr. Robbie Kashaudi has to say should go to his website, pr Premier Neurology Center. Com. Give us your phone number. Uh, my cell phone or my? No, no, no. Your, <laughs> your office, your your office your phone, phone number for our listeners. <laughs> of course, of course. 772-210-2447. This has been great. You are so kind to have joined us. High anxiety guys with the hurricane. Be careful. Do your diligence. Get your shutters up. Remember the water tips that I gave you. We're going to end with high anxiety there's a song high anxiety and i think that we might be there a little bit this weekend frank can you can you key up high anxiety for us <laughs> high anxiety there we go thank you everyone we look forward to seeing you all next week thank you for having me on another episode high of paradox it's you that i fear my heart's afraid to fly It's crashed before But then you take my hand 